The last night that uh, Jesus was with his disciples, um, he said a lot to them. I don't know if you can imagine if I told you that I knew for sure that uh, tomorrow I was uh, no longer going to be with you, that I was going to die, Um, that you would take the words that I have to say to you pretty seriously because I would give you the very essence of everything that I felt was the most important. And that's what Jesus did that night, and John recorded that in his gospel in, in chapters 13 through 17. And that's a good read, just all at once, just sit down and read through. What, what all did he say to his disciples that night? And among the things that I find there in the essence to living a life by faith, he said this, I am the way, um, I'm not a way, I am the way, the truth and the life. Um, you've seen me, you've seen the Father And my death tomorrow is in your behalf. I'm leaving, but I'm preparing a place for you, and I'm coming back. And I will be with you, and I will be in you. And in the meantime, I want you to keep my commandments, and I want you to love one another. It's interesting that those are the only two things he said. I want you to keep my commandments and I want you to love one another. My spirit is coming and so is persecution. But be of good cheer, I'm giving you my peace and my joy. Ask anything in my name and I will do it for you. That's the essence of the things that he taught his disciples that night. Go back and read that for yourself. In John 15, verse 7, it says, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask what you will, and I will do it for you. Now, before I was a believer in Christ, or knew very much at all about Scripture, I heard that statement, if you ask God anything in Jesus' name, he'll do it for you. And I remember as a kid wanting a bike and thinking, this is pretty cool. I can ask anything. You know, and I remember praying, Lord, I would really like a bike, and I want to thank you for this. And, uh, oh, by the way, Jesus' name. Uh, and I got up in the morning uh, the next day, and I went out, and I looked around out in the backyard and looked out in the front yard, and there wasn't any bike. And I thought, oh, maybe he's playing a trick, or maybe he's hit it. So I'm out in the bushes. I'm looking at every place where he might hide a bike, and there's no bike. And I'm out front, and Dad comes out, and he says, what are you doing, Eddie? And I said, well, I asked God for a bike, and I did it in Jesus' name. And I don't, I don't know what he did. Did someone steal it? And he said, um, uh, one of the first instructions I ever got from my dad in the book, although he was raised in the book, uh, I was um, junior high before I even heard about him. And I'm going, how can this be? But um, he said, well, maybe, maybe God wants to teach you something here in giving you an answer. He does say that he expects us to put our hand to work, and through that he provides for us. And I thought, well, if uh, now I look back and I say, if God's word abided in my heart, I would have known that. And then my prayer would have been more appropriate, maybe. But I got a job, and I earned the money, and I bought a bike. And um, I don't think I ever remembered until just a few weeks ago to say, thank you, Lord, for giving me a bike through my work. But it was just a thought that came, and I thought, um, how is it that if I abide in Jesus and his words abide in me, 
I'm going to ask for things that he can answer. It's when I'm all caught up in myself that I ask for things that uh, I don't get. And then he has this text here in John 16 where he says again, ask anything in my name and I will do it for you. If you could ask Jesus for anything today, what would you ask? What are the heavy issues in your heart you want an answer to, relief from? What is it that you want to be different? What would you like God to do for you? If you abide in me, my words abide in you, ask whatever you will, and I will do it. Well, I came down to this. Um, as some of you know, that um, uh, I got back three weeks ago from having been three weeks uh, out of the country. Um, I was two weeks in the Central African Republic and, um, and a week in transit in between. Um, but uh, I was asked to do two things there. I was asked to, uh, to come and speak at a uh, conference of uh, pastors, uh, 500 pastors. And I don't know if um, I, can, I can show you this. Uh, this was one of the sessions that were there. There were 500 pastors that gathered from throughout the country uh, they have 2,400 churches. Uh, 600 of the churches don't have any pastor. Uh, lay people teach, and then an itinerant preacher comes every once in a while. But uh, 500 of the pastors showed up at this conference, and I was asked to, to speak to them. But can you imagine what it had been like for me to show up at this conference, uh, unknown, uh, unannounced, and said, I'm here, and I'm prepared to speak? And they'd look and say, who are you? And I said, well, I'm here because Boy Andre and uh, Gumape Francois and Ibele Augustine invited me to come and speak. Oh, okay. And then they let me speak in the front. Now, that scenario didn't happen quite like that, but if I had come in my own name, it wouldn't have done anything. But because I came in the name of the three leaders of the 2,400 churches in Central African Republic, they recognized their authority and their invitation to me and allowed me to speak to the group. I came in the name of the leadership of the country. Because of their reputation, I was welcomed as a guest. Because of the reputation of Jesus Christ, because of what he's done for you and me, we have freedom, invitation, access to the throne of God the Father in the name of Jesus. Get the idea? What does it mean to pray in the name of Jesus? I pray in the name of the one who did a whole lot for me and who is a very significant person in my life. Well, I uh, addressed the, the people at the conference on the subject of integrity, but since I was coming, they asked me if I would speak, uh, also teach for a week at a Bible institute in Mbaiki. And that's just a town in the Central African Republic. It's just a town that's on the edge of the rainforest. Actually, it's in the rainforest. It's just most of it's been logged off, and so it's, it's on the edge of what is the, the jungle. 
but uh, I was asked to teach there for a week. And they asked me to teach on the subject of prayer. And I thought, uh, how do I do this? Uh, 20 hours of classroom time. What am I going to say about prayer during that time that would be meaningful to these people? And then I got to thinking, now who am I speaking to? Who's my audience? Uh, over half the people there are from the rainforest. They're pygmies. They're Bayaka people. They don't read. They don't write. They also don't think and process ideas in a linear fashion. They're more global in how they see things and life-related. They learn things out of life experience and out of stories. I think, so how do I teach people in that manner? About prayer. And, um, and I got to thinking, uh, maybe, maybe the issue that they're dealing with is something I'm going to talk about in a minute, but is, is that they come out of an animist world where everything is spirit. And when they pray, they're still thinking in spirit context kinds of things, not in terms of person. Like you and I, because of our life experience and because of the teaching, because of the word that we have access to, um, we understand, we, we see God formed out in a person, Jesus. He who has seen me has seen the Father, Jesus said. And so I said, maybe if I just spoke focus for a while on who is Jesus, and when I come to pray in the name of Jesus, in the authority of Jesus, and in his person, that'll give me more understanding of how to pray and have confidence when I pray that it's not just an abstract spirit that's good instead of evil. And so that was my choice in the time. So I asked then, who is Jesus, and where do I, how do I put that together? And the thought came to me to read Philippians uh, chapter 2, and if you want to turn with me, I'm going to read just a, a portion of this with you this morning. It's the text that has the, the encouragement, the Paul's encouragement to Philippians was to walk in humility, even as Jesus walked in humility, and we're to have the same kind of attitude of heart that he had. But in this context, we have a description of Jesus and who he is. And that's what I'm pulling out of the context here. But uh, it says in verse 5, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, and those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." I see four characteristics of God in this text, and I'll move you through that quickly, and that's simply this. Though he was equal with God, Jesus is God. He took on, he emptied himself, and he took on the form of a human. He is man. He lived out 33 years of human life here. And he was obedient, even obedient to the point of death and death on the cross. He became a sacrifice for us. He's our sacrifice. 
And in that obedience and through his death, the Father exalted him, raised him from the dead by the Spirit, and given him a name which is above every name that everyone would profess that he is Lord. He is the risen Lord. These are four characteristics that I find about Jesus that impact how I pray. That he's God, that he's man, that he's my sacrifice, he loved me enough to sacrifice himself for me, and that he's alive today and present with me. He's my risen Lord. And when I pray, those things are impacted. So my question will be to you, how knowing these four things about Jesus will affect how you pray and how you believe. So my question was, how will the people, how knowing Jesus be important to the people who grew up in the forest? Uh, and they grew up with this animist world that everything is spirit. Uh, the tree is spirit, the frog is spirit, the snake is spirit. There's good spirits and evil spirits. And those who cause harm to you are the evil spirits. Those that are good for you are the good spirits. Simplicity of think. But even though I was teaching men who, who had come to faith in Christ, they still lived with this worldview to a large, a large degree. Just like you and I live with the worldview we grew up with. And we, and we buck against that as we hear the truth from Scripture. Just to give you a little context and a, a little bit of background in my trip, too, that will help you with the text. Um, I went to the, um, the south-central section uh, right on the border of the Congo uh, to Mbaiki. And uh, you can see it was the rainforest. It rained uh, every day. And when it rains there, God just takes the bucket and tips it over and just drenches everything. That's how it rains. And it's uh, lush jungle uh, through most of the area. Most of the tall trees are gone. This is the road into the Bible Institute. This give you a little clue of how primitive we got to. This is the housing that was built. They're mud uh, block houses with thatched roof that the students who live there on the campus for a year and they're at the Bible Institute. And they have their, each have their own gardens and provide food for themselves. This is the place where the, they met for chapel and for the teaching. And um, this is the uh, guest house, uh, the, the, the white building there in, in the foreground. It's a duplex, uh, two rooms, one on either side. That was really upscale time, and this is for the t those guest teachers who come. And in the back, the little white uh, building back there, there's uh, two little, uh, it's a two-holer. Um, it's not quite like the two-holer you and I are used to. It, it has a concrete floor, which is pretty snazzy, uh, and it has a hole in the middle of the concrete floor and a deep pit in it, and that's where you... Um, use the bathroom and um, and that's also where you take your shower from a bucket and a cup and uh, it's, it's pretty cool it's pretty pretty upscale but it's upscale compared to what everyone else uses and that's just a woven matted three-sided wall um, at least you're private on three sides <laughs> it's, it's pretty cool but um, so I was grateful for what I did have but uh, I had a little insight into uh, the the thinking of the the people of the rainforest and that the first night I was there I went back into the, the uh, my little restroom and it was just alive with mosquitoes I couldn't go in and breathe and not take them in my nose they were so thick and I have to know by now I've been in the country four days I already developed the condition that that happens in travel in Central Africa I had to use the restroom 
I was desperate. And here were these millions, well, maybe thousands, but millions of mosquitoes everywhere. And I'm going, oh, I can't go in there. They're all carrying meningitis and, and malaria, and I don't want to go in there. And I'm going, I gotta go. And I, and I don't, can't go out into the brush because I'm backpacker. I can, I can handle this because we got the mamba that's out in the brush. Uh, just the black mamba, and they also have a green mamba there, but that's okay. The mosquitoes will only make you sick for a while, but the mambas take your breath away in 90 seconds. So, I mean, take your pick. So what am I going to do? Well, I open the door, and the mosquitoes get out a little bit, and I finally get in anyway, but, and it's getting toward dark, and I have my flashlight with me, and I happened to go past the hole, and I saw it was deep, and down in the bottom of the hole, it was just alive with water. I mean, the water was just dancing all over the place. It was larva, mosquito larva. And so I go back outside, and uh, I won't tell you the rest of the story. But anyway, um, <laughs> come to the men's breakfast in a couple of weeks, and I'll tell you the rest of the story. The, um, uh, I go and I tell my host, I said, I said that the, the cabinet, which they call it, I said, it's, uh, it, it's full of mosquitoes. It's just over, and there's larvae down in the, in the pit, and there's alive in there. And he looked at me and he said, Mosquitoes need a home. <laughs> and I'm going, I'm in trouble. <laughs> everything kind of blends in itself and its natural patterns of life and everything has its place and stuff. And, and I'm going, this is a different kind of thing than I'm used to. I swat them. I kill the, the spiders that kill them. I just, you know, I... I, I, I just, so what am I going to do? So this got to be fun. Well, I'm going to show you here too. This, is my, this was my home um, for the week that I was there in Mbaiki. It's a six by seven uh, little cubicle uh, with a door. And, um, and uh, that'll be meaningful to you here in a minute. Uh, every morning at five o'clock, I would hear a man had gotten up and he had his broom and he was sweeping the dirt out in front of our, our uh, condo here, our uh, duplex, and, um, and that woke me up, that was my alarm clock every morning, 5 o'clock, and about 5.15, there was sunrise, and it was just gorgeous every day, and some days, there was a lot more clouds than that, but the picture was too dark for you to, to see that, but it was just gorgeous every morning with that, and that was the beginning for everybody else in the in Mbaiki to head out to the jungle or to the fields to do their work in the garden, to collect bamboo, uh, to collect their firewood, because all their cooking's done over, over uh, wood, fire. They have no gas. They have no electricity. Um, it's, it's backpacking time. Um, so anyway, they, they go out the fields during the day, that's what they do during the day, and they all come back. And that's a typical day for a man in, in, in Baiki. Um, and we find that um, uh, this woman in the picture that's here is coming with her kids to celebrate. It was the last day of our, our time in, in Baiki. They were going to do a big celebration because they endured me all week and lived. Um, and, uh, but they were coming in. But just to give you a picture, this is the, the dress up that she has. Uh, everything else is pretty ragged looking clothes. But um, most of the people in the institute had one dress up thing that they would do for meetings. And that's what she was wearing that day. It's a pretty nice looking outfit. But, um, and then we had the pygmy wives uh, that were all gathered there. Uh, there were 12, uh, 25 men, 12 of the men were uh, pygmies, um, uh, Bayaka men, and their wives, and these are their wives that were there. Um, uh, the, the older children took care of the, the little kids, the babies, um, 
while a mom and dad were in classes with me. And uh, this is the girl, and we have a, a, a boy here with his uh, little brother in pictures there. And, uh, and uh, I was with a, a group of women uh, uh, there one day, and I was taking pictures around, and I looked at their hair, and I said, you know, my wife's a hairdresser, and one of them translated for me, and I said, could I get a picture, and they all bent over and put their heads together so I could get a picture of uh, their hairstyles, and uh, I thought you'd kind of like that. Some of you look a little strange here if you did that, but maybe I, maybe not. Uh, um, it's kind of cool. They don't have to worry with bugs in this kind of hair, so, but, uh, and here's the classroom where we met every day uh, for classes. Uh, uh, 25 men and their wives uh, became pretty close with some of the students and uh, good friends. We'd meet around the fire at night because you know, it was dark at 5:30, and and uh, so they hang around the fire for three hours. And I learned some songo, and they learned some English, and and we had a good time. And uh, these were all the students at the completion of the the, the seminar. And I'm wearing my oh the uh, the next picture back the other way I think yeah there we go. I'm there on the left on the front, and I'm wearing my doctoral robe. At the end of the week, they, uh, they commissioned me as a, a doctor. So in Bikey Bible Institute, I'm Dr. Trenner. That's, that was kind of cool. <laughs> but uh, we had good times with that. But I, I showed you this just to show you the simplicity of life of the people. They're very connected to the, the world they live in, uh, the grounds, the farm, the, uh, just their whole context. So how do you, in this context, where you understand everything is good or evil and spirit-connected, how do you talk about God in the spiritual realm so that they understand what you're talking about? And I said, I think what's important is that they understand who Jesus is. And I said, I don't think that's unlike us here. I don't think we think of God so much as spirit as much as we have internal needs and wants and we speak them out loud and assume that God someplace understands our logic and our think and, and, and has a kind heart towards us and is going to do something that we can't do. But I think we've disconnected a bit when we pray from the person of Jesus in whose name we've been told to pray. So that's why I want to look at these four characteristics real quick with you here. Jesus is God. Uh, Philippians 2.6, it just said there he was equal with God, but did not consider that something to grasp or hang on to, but emptied himself, gave that, but he was equal with God. In uh, John chapter 1, uh, verse 1, uh, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the be- beginning with God. And in verse 14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father. So we know from verse 14 that the word that's in verse 1 is Jesus. So we read this, In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Jesus was in the beginning with God. That's why you find in Genesis 1, it says, Let us make man in our image. You know, and you can read again the statement of Jesus as the creator in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15, 16. Um, and we find that, that he's creator. But I find also here, let me read here in John and 2, in verse 3, it says, All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. 
So he's not only God, but he's creator God. See, and Colossians 1 speaks that uh, of us, that he's the creator. And we know that as God, uh, according to Ephesians uh, chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, it says, For unto him, unto God, who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, all according to the power that works within us. This Jesus, who is God, who's creator, can do all things as God. And when I pray, do I understand that the one in whose name I pray is not limited in any way? He is able to do all, exceedingly abundantly beyond all, that I ask or even think and haven't asked for yet you see that's the Jesus the all powerful Jesus and in Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen, he spoke of himself and he says all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth he has the power and the dominion over everything my first night in Mbike Understand something, for two weeks, I was never dry. I was dripping sweat day and night for two weeks. I drank four liters of water a day, visited the restroom once. Just to kind of give you a little feel, it was 110 temperature, 100 at night, 95% humidity the whole time. My little six by seven cubicle had no air except the door. It was hot in there, it had a tin roof, it was really nice, but a thatched roof would have been better. But it was, it was really nice, except it was hot. And it was, you know, I remember going in there about 9 o'clock that first night and thinking, I can't do this. i got to have air. It's too hot. I can't do this. I can't, I, can't, I can't close the door. I can't leave the door open. The mambas are out at night. What am I going to do? And I remember laying there, underneath my mosquito netting, tucked in underneath the mattress that, that I was sleeping on, and thinking, God, I just don't know what I'm, I can't. And the door was open. And I said, Jesus, tomorrow I'm going to teach the people here that you are the, the God of the universe, the creator of all things, and all things are under your authority. I don't have another option if I'm going to sleep. And why can't I trust you? That's what I'm asking the people to do. So I commit all those mambas out there to you tonight. <laughs> and I actually laid down and I slept for six hours. I don't even do that at home. But I'm just saying there's something about knowing Jesus and who he is and who it is that I'm praying to that has an impact on how I believe and trust and pray. That he's all-knowing. In Matthew 6, verse 8, the Father knows even before we ask it says, Matthew 6, 8. I think Mike's probably already passed through that one with you. And that he's ever-present. Um, Psalm 139. Um, uh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. Um, and you know when I sit down and when I rise up, you understand my thought from afar. You know my thoughts. 
You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, Lord, you know it. You know what's in my mind before I even say it. You have enclosed me behind and before. You've laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I send to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, and if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, next to the rainforest, even there, your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. What does this tell you about our God? And when I pray, is there any limit to him? He's present everywhere. I can't go anywhere to get out of his presence. Paul expressed it in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, that nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. How does this affect how I pray? What's in your life that seems impossible? Is there anything he can't do? Does he withhold it because he wants to punish you? Does he withhold it because he doesn't love you? Well, we'll learn some more about the character of Christ as we go. And we find in Philippians 2, 7 that he emptied himself and took on the human form. This speaks to me that he experienced everything that you and I experience in human flesh. And in Hebrews chapter 4, it speaks of that. The writer of Hebrews uh, put it this way. He says, therefore, since we, in verse 14, therefore, since we have a great high priest, one who is the go-between between us and God, uh, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And here, the writer of Hebrews calls Jesus, the Son of God, our high priest before the Father, the one who represents us before the Father. Uh, let us hold fast our confession of, uh, of faith, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So he's experienced all the stuff that we experience. He understands our weakness in the human flesh. There isn't anything you can't go to him about that he doesn't understand. He welcomes us. First Chronicles uh, chapter 28, verse 9 says, As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father David and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all the hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. He knows even the motive of what's in us that we often don't even recognize. So how does that affect my prayer, knowing that he understands me? Nothing's hidden from him. There ain't anything he can't do. Well, the fact that he was man is very important to the people who live in the jungle. The children suffer the most. The life expectancy in the CR Republic is 46 years, and it's primarily because of child death. And they learn to pray 
and the, the children of the students at the Bible Institute prayed for water because the water supply they had was a murky yellow and full of disease. And they prayed, and uh, a man came and drilled a well for them. And the children were really excited when I saw them because they wanted to show me God's answer to prayer, their water, clean, clear water that they could push the foot pedal and get water from it. They learned as a kid how to pray and that God answers. Jonathan yeah, was my translator, um, brilliant young man, uh, born and raised on Songo, the language of the people, but uh, worked with the uh, Peace Corps. Uh, must have been very young at the time because I think he's only in his 30s, mid-30s right now. But uh, he learned English from the Peace Corps workers and he learned French from the uh, French relief workers. And he's quite proficient in all three languages. And uh, he translated for me. This is his family. He lives in a very simple life. Simple uh, place. It's just a mud block house. One room. Do the cooking outside in a fire. And they have their uh, blind out back. It's got three sides on it. Uh, and uh, because of his language skills, he's probably going to start working at the Bible Institute as a translator. And because of his knowledge of scripture, uh, will probably become a teacher there. But if they have a medical problem, they can go to the regional hospital there in Mbaiki, the, the prefect that's there, and, um, and they can get all the care that's available there, and this is all the medication they have at the hospital. Uh, give you a little bit of feel for the... They suffer a great deal when it comes to illness, and they have a lot of it. Uh, this is a picture of the wife of the first pastor who took the gospel to Mbaiki. Um, and just to give you a feel for this, she's a widow, and as a widow, she's on her own. She doesn't have family around because all her family's gone. And she's outlived them all. She's 60-something and well past the 46 years. And she makes brooms. And she gave me a broom. And she sells these brooms uh, to make her living to, for her food because she can't take care of her own garden and grow her own. And um, here's a picture of some, uh, some ladies who are all widows. And they're from the capital, Bangui. Uh, they've been deserted by their families and they were left alone and some uh, churches gathered up and they uh, uh, planted a large field with rice and gave it to the women. The women uh, went out then there to take care of the field. They were doing the weeding and the, making sure water got to it and stuff. And here they're headed out uh, to the first harvest of their rice field and we happened to be there on that day. And here they were celebrating their, their first swipe of rice uh, from the field. They'll take, they have enough rice there to feed them for the year and, uh, and enough rice to sell to take care of the other needs in their life all out of this field, and uh, it's their field. I give you a little feel for the understanding of the difficulty of life that people have and how important it is to them to know that Jesus understands, that God is fleshed out in a way that I can see and understand. There are two more characteristics of Jesus. He's God, he's man, and he's our sacrifice. He was obedient unto death, even death on the cross. John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus coming, called him the Lamb of God, the one who would be sacrificed for them, the one who would sacrifice himself for their sin. In 1 Peter 2, verse 24, it says, Jesus himself bore our sins in his own body on the cross. Even as the sacrificial lamb in the temple system, um, the high priest, the priest would lay his hand uh, as symbolic of putting the sin on the animal and the animal was slain. Uh, Jesus was slain for us. He died on the cross for us. He is our sacrifice. 
And if you remember the night before uh, his crucifixion, he said, Father, I don't want to do this. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He willingly went to the cross for you and me, even though he didn't want to. We miss that sometimes in the conversation. He loves us. Hebrews 7, 26 um, describes the uh, sacrificial system of the Jews in the temple and how Jesus was our sacrifice. Um, Romans chapter 5, verse 8, which we read this morning out loud, all of us here. But God proved his love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How does that affect my prayer? I know that God loves me that much. And in Jesus' name in whom I pray, offered his life for me. And the Father exalted him and gave him a name above every name. He's our risen Lord. Philippians 2.9. In Romans chapter 8, uh, verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. When you and I pray, Jesus is interceding for us. And in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, My little children, I say these things to you so that you do not sin. But if you do, know that you have an advocate, a lawyer who represents you before the Father, even Jesus. And any time Satan comes around and points his finger and condemns you and me, remember something. Jesus is in heaven saying, Father, they violated your law. They were disobedient to you. They were neglectful to you, and they deserve your judgment. But remember, I took that for them. He's our lawyer pleading our case. He's our advocate. And he calls us to an intimate relationship with himself. In John 15, 5, uh, abide in me and I in you. Live in me. And I live in you. Colossians 1, 27, Christ in you and me is our hope of glory. He's not only with us, but he's in us. Present with us in all situations. So now maybe you can see why it's important to the African and to us to understand that when we pray and pray in the name of Jesus, who it is that we're praying in the name of. I'm going to take you another couple minutes, but I'm going to do this. What I've just told you about the African is also true of the Parisian in France, those who live in Paris. I was there for three days on the return. I was there, saw the, the highlights, you know, from the top of a hotel. I got pictures of the Eiffel Tower. I didn't have to go there to do it. Uh, we stopped and visited the Cathedral of Notre Dame, which is, you know, one of the main sites of Paris. And just outside of the, the cathedral is what they mark as the center of the city. Um, they got beautiful stained glass, beautiful architecture that's there. But inside, it's a museum. It's empty like the hearts of the French. And I only say this to say we're headed in the same direction as a country. And we are as a country as the people of God are. And when you and I guard our hearts, when you and I come before the Father and we learn how to pray, when we humble ourselves and pray, when we turn from our ways, God heals and answers 
Paris is an international city, has a very large Arab population. Uh, it's somewhere between 40-50% of the city is uh, foreign-born now. It's just it's huge uh, global population that's there. Rob and Nicole Plaster are missionaries, uh, young couple that are missionaries with us and Grace Brethren. And um, uh, they're on the, the right, uh, Rob and Nicole, and on the left is Julian. Um, I arrived in Paris on Thursday afternoon. Thursday night, Rob and, and Nicole gathered 12 of their friends, and one of them was Julian. Julian's a lawyer. He's 33. Uh, he's too young for this, but he went to a good school and got a good connect. Um, if Microsoft or Intel have a legal problem in France, he's their representative. That give you an idea of his stature. Uh, but it's just a common, common guy. And we got to talk on that last night, Thursday night, and uh, talked about schooling and told him what he did. And he said, what was your major? And I said, philosophy. And his eyes lit up. And, um, and, uh, and it, we got to talking about uh, how you know things and you know, just philosophically kind of talking and stuff. And, um, and I told him that, uh, he said, how is it that you can be a Christian and believe in Jesus when the first things written about him were two centuries after he died? And I said, where did you get that, Julian? He said, and he named the philosopher who is real popular in France today. And I said, do you know anything about the Bible? Do you know about the Old Testament, New Testament? Yeah. Do you know about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? I've heard that before. And so Matthew, the first writer there, was one of the men who lived with Jesus for three years. And he wrote his book within 30 years of the death of Jesus. And John, also one of the 12 disciples who was with Jesus three years, wrote his gospel. It was about 50 years after the, or with me, about 40 years after the, the death of Jesus that he wrote his gospel. And I said, we even have fragments of his, of, of his gospel that date to his lifetime. They're located in Dublin in the museum. And he just, he couldn't believe all this. So he spent all day Friday, came Friday morning, met us at the apartment, spent the whole day with us, took us to dinner this night. Uh, we're here. I said, or looked at the menu. I said, I said uh, Julian, I can't read French. You're going to have to help me. He says, no problem. He ordered one of everything. I'm going. <laughs> but he hung with us, and all the time we were together, he's talking about the Lord. And who is this man, Jesus? That was the issue. It wasn't the ideology of Christianity. It wasn't the doctrine of Christianity. It was the person of Jesus and what he did and what he said that drew him in. And he stayed with us again all day Saturday, came for a breakfast thing on Saturday morning, and was at this gathering um, on Saturday night at one of the houses. There's Rob and Nicole that were there. It was a birthday party because the, the woman who is the, lives in this apartment hosted a birthday party. It was her celebrating her first year of spiritual birth in Christ. And she invited some of her non-Christian friends and, and some were there. This is Nam from Vietnam. And uh, Nam, Vietnam, I guess maybe. But uh, she was the one who hosted. And the one on the right to her right there is a French lady who works with her in the hospital. She's a doctor. Uh, she has her doctorate. And then uh, the group on the other side is... Um, it's over here. Uh, the lady uh, the left is from um, uh, the Caribbean, a French island just off the coast of South America. And then the lady from Taiwan, and then Julian was there, and then a lady from North Africa, from Morocco. Uh, but they were from all countries, and the man at the other end of the table is from Tel Aviv. Uh, and they're all gathered there, half of them believers, half of them not, and those who were believers shared their testimony that night, and they all shared about Jesus. They didn't speak of their Christian faith as a religion. They spoke of it as a relationship with Christ. And that's what you and I have when we come to him in prayer. Father, thank you.
Thank you for the privilege of coming to you. Thank you for the open invitation to come to you. That we can bring everything to you. And Lord, we give thanks for the promises that you've given that you hear and you answer. And Lord, we come with the confidence knowing that you know everything about us. Jesus, you've experienced everything that we experience and you tell us to come with confidence before your throne to find grace and mercy to help in times of need. And we come. Thank you for meeting with us. Thank you in Jesus. Amen.